Good morning and happy Easter. Yeah, you guys look fantastic. You're welcome. Uh, I can't see you guys in overflow, but I imagine you look fantastic as well. And I always welcome my friends that are joining us in Fredericksburg. My name is Jason Windsor. I'm one of the student pastors here at the Mount. Uh, For those of you that like to follow along, that brought your Bibles with you, we're going to be primarily coming out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, but I want to be honest with you, because if we're going to begin a relationship together, honesty should be the foundation of that relationship. Uh, We're going to be all over. We're going to be in John. We're going to be in Romans. We're going to quote Tacitus. We are going to be all over. So if you just want to buckle up and follow along for the ride, that's good too. But before we dig in, those of you that are crafty Mount veterans, you already know this that we are all about making an impact in the communities around us. To be honest, if we gather on Sunday morning, that's great, but if what we learn and if what we experience doesn't make it to the rest of the week, it was just a really fun hour or so that didn't really impact our lives. And so once every spring, we take a week and truly focus on those around us. We call it Impact Week, and we would love for you guys to join us. You can go to the website, and you can click on the link, and it'll open up a variety, a veritable menu of options for you to choose to serve people. There'll be things like feeding at shelters and things of that nature, and you're more than welcome to participate in those, but the true power of Impact Week is when you look up and down your street or in your office space or in your school, and you see a need that nobody else sees, and then you meet that need. Nobody might see it. Nobody but you might even know that it happened other than the person you serve. But that is the true power of Impact Week. The slowing down, putting our eyes on those around us to show them the love and power of Jesus Christ. So that will kick off April 24th, but you don't need to wait till then. If you see a need on April 21st, by all means, it still counts. You're still making an impact. So go ahead and do that. Now, since we are going to be spending the next little bit of our lives together, I figured we should get to know each other. Uh, And since I have the mic, I'll go first. Uh, I'll tell you a little story uh, about my life so that we can get to know each other a little better. I uh, once asked out many, many moons ago, I'm not going to tell you how many moons ago, but many, many moons ago, a young lady by the name of Erin Pennick. Yes, I did. I asked her out approximately 173,000 times, and then I lost count because the answer was always the same. Hey, Aaron, will you go out with me? No. It never varied, and she never gave an explanation. She was like, no, because I'm too busy. No, because I'm... No. That's right. But my dogged determination was in there. And after the 173,000th time that I had asked her out, I figured I was going to need a more creative approach because this young lady seemed very resolute in her conviction to not date me. So we're at a church in Stockbridge, Georgia, hanging out by some picnic tables up on kind of a grassy area. And about 40 yards away across the parking lot stood a basketball goal because I don't know if you know this, but every church is obligated to have a basketball goal. It's standard, it's not in the Bible, but it should be. Drive by a church, there's a basketball goal. And so me and my buddy Matt were throwing the football and all of us are kind of hanging out and I turn to Aaron Pennick and I say, hey, will you go out with me? And this is what she said. No. <laughs> I was not surprised, but my friends, I had a plan. I said, okay, 
You said no, but what if I can take this football and what if I can put this football in the small square right above the goal? Not the big backboard, the small square that is situated directly above the orange rim. What if I can put this football in that small square? And she looked at me and she said, no. (laughs) I'm telling you, I am not underselling her determination to not date me. She said, no, but my friend's peer pressure is a beautiful double-edged sword. And this is where the fortunes of Jason Windsor turned. Because everybody we were hanging out with goes, oh, come on, it'll be fun. There's no way he could do it. It's so far away. It's 10 feet off the ground. There's no way that that can happen. And so for the first time, in an uncountable number of times, Aaron said, okay, not yes. She said, okay, if you can put that football in that small square, then I will go on a date with you, which is significantly better than all the other answers I had received. So I took the football, squared my shoulders, took my step, tossed it, and I promise you, nine civil engineers with laser measuring devices, protractors, all kinds of instruments that I don't know even exist, could not have found the geometric center of that square any better than the nose of my football did. There was going to be no debate. No, it was on the line. No, it's a do-over. Nothing. And I am proud to say that the crowd went wild. Everybody up there at the table goes, oh, And there are witnesses, and my wife is a woman of her word. And so she knew that she had to give me a date. But I haven't told you the real part of the story yet. Obviously, it worked out well. We're married, we have five children, but I did not tell her till later that I had practiced that shot. I had dragged a sack of footballs up to those picnic tables, golly, three, four times a week for like six weeks. And I didn't always make that shot, but I made it enough to know my chances were better than 50%, which they were 0% under my current method. So I knew I had a fighting shot. And the rest, as they say, is history. And that is a huge story in my life. That is a huge, I cannot imagine if that football was one foot to the right with all the shared experience that Aaron and I have had and the children that we have and how entertained, to pull that experience out of my life would be impossible. It's impossible to see my life without that moment, but I understand it's not that significant a moment for you guys. You might say it's a cute story, entertaining, something along those lines. But honestly, your life, if you had never heard that story, would not change one bit. It's not a significant story in your existence because you have significant stories in your existence. You have other things like that, moments where if this has happened instead of that happening, everything would be different, where it's difficult to see your life turning out the way it is if that moment didn't happen. So in this, we see a significant moment for me is not necessarily a significant moment for you and vice versa. But there are a handful of transcendent moments. 
There are a handful of moments that it makes sense to say before this happened and after this happened. Great world wars, advances in technology, things that changed and shaped culture in our lives afterward. But even those have limitations in the power of the moment. A medieval knight cares nothing for World War II because quite frankly, that medieval knight never experienced it and doesn't care. Long dead by the time World War II came. There's only one moment in all the moments recorded in human history, if we gathered them all up, there's only one moment that has the power to reach back into the past and affect everything that happens in the future. There's only one moment that despite when you were born, where you were born, what ethnicity you are, how much money you have in your, there is only one moment that it literally doesn't matter what the circumstances of your life are. It has affected you profoundly. And that is the moment that we gather here to celebrate today, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that resurrection is why Jesus is such a controversial figure. He has been debated since he came on the scene. But he's not controversial because of what he taught. He taught things like don't steal, don't cheat on your spouse, be nice to people, be sacrificial. Even if you don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is, I think any rational mind can agree that if we listen to his teachings, the world would be a better place. He's not controversial because of what he said. And to be honest, he's not really controversial for the vast majority of what he did. He went and he helped the oppressed. He was kind to people that society had cast out. He went around teaching people and feeding people. Again, this stirs no controversy in us. He's not even controversial because he claimed to be God. There are literally tens of thousands of people in human history that have claimed to be God, and we talk about almost none of them. He's controversial because he said he was God and he said he could prove it, and then he did. He's controversial because he walked around first century Palestine saying, hey, I'm God, I'm from God. I knew God since the beginning of time and I'm gonna prove it. I'm gonna walk to my own murder in Jerusalem and after you watch me die, you're going to see me again. And he's controversial because there's a lot of people that he walked with and he lived with that said, yeah, that happened. One of them is his friend John and there's a lot of eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, not just John. And there's a lot of times that he said, I am God and I will prove it from coming back. But this eyewitness account from his friend John is my favorite because it comes after a very famous passage. I think the vast majority of, have heard of the passage where Jesus walks in the temple and starts throwing things. It's one of the favorites because we say, yeah, Jesus went in and he was really angry and he threw over tables and he was really mad. And yes, since Jesus got really mad and did these things when I'm really mad, I can do those things too. It's one of our favorite passages because it justifies how angry we get because it's righteous for me to be angry at all the wrong that you are doing to me right now. Jesus used the passage to reveal something a little different. He fashions a whip, he drives out the merchants, he flips over the tables, and then he says to them, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. He says, this is my dad's house, and the nonsense that you have brought in is not welcome here. 
His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. And then the Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Very reasonable question because he's messing with them. He walks in and he says, hey, the way you've been doing things, you're not going to do that here anymore. You're wrong. He starts messing with their money because they got a really good thing going on here. And essentially they ask him, what gives you the right to do this? On what authority do you get to do this? And every parent has asked their kid this. Who do you think you are? That's what they're asking him. You're gonna go act like this? Who do you think you are? You better have a really good answer. And this is what he says. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. They believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Jesus calls his shot. He says, I'm God. You're going to watch me be murdered. And then you're going to shake my hand again. We universally, at least baseball minds, universally regard Babe Ruth as one of the greatest players to ever live, regardless of era, regardless of time, when baseball minds talk about baseball players, the name Babe Ruth comes up because of what he did. One of the legends or the legacies of Babe Ruth is his called shot. In game three of the 1932 World Series, Babe Ruth walked to the plate, he pointed at where he planned to hit a home run, and then he put the ball there. And that is a very difficult thing to do. It's very hard to hit a round baseball coming at you 90 miles an hour with a round piece of wood over the fence, let alone where you just told everybody you would put it. The jersey he wore when he did this sold in 2005 for almost a million dollars. Would you guys realize, like in today's money with inflation is like 46 bajillion dollars. Like, the gas required to go to the auction house and pick it up <laughs> is probably close to a million dollars. All because he hit a baseball where he said he would. I would contend that what Jesus did is much more difficult. Coming out of the grave is much more difficult than hitting a home run. So if you tell me I'm God and I'll prove it to you, because I will resurrect from the dead, and then you do it, I go with you. You're my guy from that point on. And his followers believe this. And this is why he's controversial. This is why scholars for 2,000 years have been putting forth arguments and submitting documents and going back and forth. Did Jesus exist? Is he who he says he is? Because the answer to that question changes everything. And we say you have to have faith in Jesus to know him. And the word faith is all throughout writings about Jesus. Paul says you are saved by faith. Jesus says it takes faith to follow me. The author of Hebrews has my favorite quote. The author of Hebrews says without faith it is impossible to please God. For those who come to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. 
That faith is a funny word, though. Depending on who says it and who's listening, it can mean different things. Uh, I have friends that when they text me and they say, I will be at your house in five minutes, I start getting ready. Then I have other friends. <laughs> I have friends that when they text me and say, hey, I'll be there in five minutes, I go make a cup of coffee. And I start a load of laundry. And I consider other things that I can do that are more valuable with my time than waiting the 30 to 90 minutes that it will take my friend to get there. Because I know what's going to come next is about the 27th minute, I'm going to get another text that says, I've just left my house, which we all also know is a lie. <laughs> that means I am now preparing to leave my house. So sometimes what is being said is not always what is being heard, and the word faith is like that, because sometimes when we read scriptures like that and we hear the word faith, we think, I must trust this regardless of any evidence. I must just make this choice. And Jason, you just told me that that's the most important decision I will ever make, that what I think of Jesus literally changes everything. And it does. We wrestle with some really great questions in humanity. Who am I? How did I get here? Why am I here? Is life meaningful? What happens after death? And hundreds like it. We wrestle with these things. They keep us up at night. We want the answers to them because the answers define our existence. But the question, who is Jesus Christ, supersedes them all. Because once you are settled in your mind with who Jesus is, the rest of those questions fall in place. I know what happens after death. I know who created me. I know what my purpose is. And the question, who is Jesus, will always be linked to the question, did Jesus rise from the dead? Because if he did, then he is God. And he gave us minds not to create truth, as we so often think that we were given minds to do, but he gave us minds to examine or perceive the truth. We don't take this claim on faith. God says very clearly, love me with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your, your great theologians. He says, love with all your mind. He never asked us to take this claim on blind faith. In fact, he sent Jesus here so that people would write eyewitness accounts about Jesus so that we could look at them and determine for ourselves if what he said was true. One such account came from a Roman historian, Tacitus, who in book 15 of his Roman uh, archaeological uh, and historical tomes called the Annals had three passages on Christians. And in this passage, he claims that the Christ was crucified by Pontius Pilate and that a mischievous superstition arose, making it all the way to Rome. And this mischievous superstition led his followers to be brave and follow him even as they were tortured. Even as Nero tried to pin the great Roman fire on him, these people refused to recant this mischievous superstition. And we know from other eyewitness accounts what that superstition was. The Jewish historian Josephus says that followers of the Christ believed to have seen him after he died. 
And so when you take Tacitus and when you take Josephus and when you take John and Luke and Matthew and Mark, we see that our belief that Jesus Christ rose from the dead is not rooted in blind faith, but in historical record. And as persuasive as that is, it is still not as persuasive as a changed life. You can tell me what you believe, but I'm watching your actions because I know what you do when your gas gauge is on a quarter of a tank. You say, I've got to get gas soon, and you run that bad boy down to an eighth of a tank. But once it gets to an eighth of a tank, you start thinking very seriously, I've got to pull into a gas station. And I know you believe that because you do it. Because that's how we measure the power of a moment. Some things happen to us that change our belief system and affect us for a week. Something for a few years. But the most powerful moments, they reach down deep into us. They change the very fabric of how we see reality and they change our entire lives. And we need to look no farther outside for evidence of this than in Jesus' own family. He was not an only child. He had brothers and sisters. One such brother was James. Can you imagine? Some of, some of you have had to live in the shadow of an old, older sibling. Can you imagine what it was like for James to live in the shadow of the living God? There's no evidence that during Jesus' life, James thought of his brother as anything beyond his brother. He's not in any account as a follower of Jesus. He's not in any account of saying anything. He, he's not there during his life at all. But all of a sudden, after his death, he can't stop telling people about his brother. To the point where he is murdered, he's illegally stoned because he believes that his brother is God. You've called your brother a lot of things in your life. None of them is Lord. None of them is Savior. And none of them is God. I've heard a pastor say it like this. What would your sibling have to do to convince you that he or she was God? I say there's only one thing that Brian Windsor could do to convince me that he was God. That's die and then come back. Because no man can defeat death. We will all die. But James went to his death after leading a church in Jerusalem that claimed Jesus was who he says he was, went to his death calling his own brother God. The resurrection is the best explanation for that fact. And he's not the only one. There's a man named Saul who literally held jackets during the stoning of a Christian so that the people that were killing Stephen would not get blood on them. He thought it was his mission to stamp out the blasphemy that Jesus is God. He thought it was his holy duty to the one true God to hunt down in prison and potentially torture anyone that said Jesus rose from the dead. And then one day, it changed like that. And all of a sudden, instead of hunting Christians, he was planting churches 
to make Christians. This is not as simple as, I like asparagus. Mmm, I've tried it. Now, I don't like asparagus. It's just not that simple. This is a complete radical change of how you see the world and how you see your life. This man was shipwrecked and imprisoned and ultimately, like James, went to his death saying that Jesus is who he says he was. He changed his name to Paul and everything else changed with it. And we don't have to guess as to why. He tells us all throughout his writings. We're just gonna take a look at one that he wrote to a letter at the Church of Rome where he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. Now pay attention. And who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says, I changed my mind. I saw a guy that died. And so I know that guy is God. Because to James and Paul, the only rational reaction to seeing Jesus say, I'm going to be murdered and then you'll see me again and then seeing him again is a radically changed life. Because they understood what you and I understand. That agreeing that Jesus is who he says he is changes everything. What we once thought was important, maybe now not so much. Who we once thought we were, maybe we're something different. Why we thought we lived, very different in the face of an empty tomb. Because once you realize that Jesus is who he says he is, there is a new driving force in your life. And Paul tells us what that is in his letter to the church at Corinth. So we'll pick up in chapter five, verse 14, where he writes, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. He says, look, I have concluded that one died for all, and therefore we've all died with him. So his love is my new driving force. Because Jesus came out of the dead, because that tomb is empty, because the resurrection is fact and not fiction, the cross means something completely different. You realize that no nails held Jesus to the cross. You realize that no army can march the all-powerful, all-knowing Son of God to his death. There's one thing that kept the Christ on that cross, and that's his love for you and me. James and Paul acutely knew that all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God left heaven, perfect heaven, to come to significantly less perfect earth. Lived the last three years of his life homeless and persecuted. Ultimately walked willingly to his torture and his murder because he loved you and me. Nothing kept him on that cross but his love for us. And we get that love twisted. We think that the love of God means once that we say Jesus is who he says he is, everything works out in our lives. 
because all things work together for the good who those who love the Lord, which has to mean that I'll always have enough money and my air conditioning will always work and I'll never have to do anything really, really hard. We twist the love of God into a little fairy tale about our own existence, but the love of God is so much more powerful than that. The love of God isn't that bad things will never happen to us and that bad things will never be done to us. The love of God and the promise of the empty tomb is the bad things that you and I do and the bad things that have been done to us no longer have the last word. That is the power of the love of God. And when we perceive that love and when we agree that Jesus is who he says he is, we understand that we no longer have a spirit of fear, we no longer have a spirit of worry, we no longer have a spirit of sadness, we now have a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. James and Paul marched willingly and courageously to their deaths because they knew what can man do to us. What power does man have to do anything to us that would undo the promise of the empty tomb? Nothing. Because the empty tomb is the final card played. The empty tomb is game over. The empty tomb is I am who God says I am and he is who he says he is. Paul expounds and he says, and he died for all that those who might no longer, who might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and raised. He said he died to change the very fabric of our reality, that we would no longer live for us, no longer live for me, no longer me as the center of the universe, but I would live for those around me, the others that he died for, that instead of I look out for number one, I've been saved by grace through the Son of God, and now I have a larger purpose. And he expounds on that purpose. He says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We don't look at each other and think, wow, he's more talented, or wow, she's got more money. We don't think less of each other. Our vision is completely different, because when I see you, I see someone that Christ died for. When I see you, I see someone that he raised for. When I see you, I see someone with God, and when I see you, I see someone who needs God. He redefines how we see the entirety. There's no good, better, best. He destroys all classifications. And we see each other as he sees us. Children in need of a savior, loved by a God who left heaven and allowed himself to be murdered. And this realization changes how we see him as well. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. Since we know who God is now, we can be settled in our minds about all the other questions that face humanity. I don't have to wonder what happens to me after I die. I don't have to wonder if I have value. I don't have to wonder if you have value. Anyone that is unified in Christ, anyone that believes that he is who he says he is, is a new creation and gets a fresh start. And that fresh start carries with it some amazing truths. He says, all of this is from God, 
All of this is a gift from God. The fresh start is a gift from God. The new nature is a gift from God. The shift from anxiety to power and from slavery to self-control is a shift from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against him. We all realize that the world that we currently live in is not the world as it was designed, right? This is the world we created. When we were handed this world, it was perfect. When we were handled this world, everything was in harmony. And then we decided it should be different than God intended it. With every lie you and I have told, with every act of good we have withheld from one another, with every heart we've broken, with every word that we've said that has hurt one of God's children, we have corrupted this world. And as a result, we have separated us from ourselves from God. But God, unwilling that this would be the final arrangement, sent Jesus and through his death and resurrection, reconciled the world back to himself. And with that, gave us a mission that supersedes all other missions. Gave us a goal of life that's actually worth living for. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He says, I implore you. I beg you. Those of you that believe Jesus rose from the dead, those of you that believe that he is who he says he is, I implore you, act like it. You've been given this great big purpose to tell the people the truth that you know. To go into the office buildings, to go into the classrooms, to go on the sports fields and say, hey, Jesus is alive. And this is what it means to know the power of the resurrection. To have the very fabric of your life reoriented to the single most truth that has ever been proclaimed. God has defeated death. Jesus is alive. And now all men and women can spend eternity with him. It's that simple. But the most profound things are often very simple. I would implore those of you who are unsettled in your mind to come to that decision today, to weigh the claims of Jesus Christ, to examine if he is who he says he is, and most importantly, to examine if he called his shot and rose from the grave. Because if he said that he was gonna be murdered, and if he shook somebody's hand after he was, then he is who he says he is. And all the other truths fall into place. So I implore you, be settled in your mind as to who Jesus is today. If you bow your heads and close your eyes. If for the first time today you made that decision, that you became settled in your mind as to who Jesus is, we would love for you to just real quickly shoot up your hand so that we can give you a Bible and we can get to know you a little bit better. If you just shoot it up real quick, somebody will come. 
but we also have fine men and women of the prayer team that'll be up here on either side that can chat with you. Because if you wanna talk about what it means to know Jesus Christ and what it means to claim that Jesus is who he says he is, then we would love to help you walk through that. We're kind of a big family, this Mount family. And it's hard sometimes to get a foothold, but that can happen today if you come right up to those men and women on the prayer team. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. We thank you for loving us even when we don't love you. And we thank you for the love you show on the cross and the power you show in the resurrection. We ask that all of us would become settled in our minds as to who you are and all of us would find the truth and the power of the resurrection that you are who you say you are. We love you and we ask these things in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.